1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. And if you would, follow along as I read. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And, we know, er, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because... Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, God, we thank you uh, for... Again, who you are, Lord, the character uh, that you share with us, Lord, that you are a God of of love, that you are a God of mercy, Lord, that you're a just God, that you're a holy God, Lord, and and you're a God that that shares that character with, with his creation, Lord, with us. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you, Lord. And God, as we've been going through 1 John and been looking at, at our relationship with you and, our, and where we're at with you, Lord. I pray this morning, through this passage, Lord, that we're encouraged, Lord, not because of anything we're doing, not because of any works, Lord, but we're encouraged because of who you are and what you have done for us, Lord. So be with us this morning, Lord, as we go through this passage, Lord, and I pray that we are in just in awe of how gracious and merciful you are. In your son's name, amen. Last week, um, I studied and, and preached on probably one of the most convicting passages I've ever studied um, throughout Scripture. Uh, John, last week, as I preached, compared the hatred of Cain, right, the brother that violently killed his brother in, in uh, Genesis, with the love of Christ. Right, these two extreme examples, the self-sacrificial love of Christ. And the convicting part about the passage that we went over last week is that John doesn't give us a third option. In other words, if you're not loving like Christ, John makes it, it, makes it clear in that passage that you're hating like Cain. John wanted to make, make it clear to the congregation that he's, he's writing to that indifference towards your brother within the church is equal to hatred. And we see that in 1 John 3, 17. It says this, But if, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right? It, it doesn't, in other words. And I had a large number of, of, of you, after the sermon last week, come up to me and say that was a convicting, <laughs> convicting sermon. That was a convicting passage. And then I'll, I'll tell you, just studying it throughout the week, I was convicted. It, it was a convicting portion of scripture. But I want to remind you again of the context of this epistle and the purpose of why John is writing 1 John. The context again is these false teachers have come and have been teaching a a heretical doctrine and they've pulled a a large number of people away from the faith. And John's afraid that the true church, those that are truly saved within the church, are starting to question their salvation, questioning their faith. 
So he's really writing 1 John to encourage them. And that's what we see in 1 John 5.13. I write these things, this is why I'm writing 1 John, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, you may have confidence, in other words, you may know that you have eternal life. He's telling this church, look at those false believers. They don't show any evidence of salvation. They're teaching false doctrines about Christ. They say he wasn't physical. They're, They're living unrighteously blatantly unrighteously and they're unloving and there's a struggle in first john and john's really walking this this fine line of of giving evidence of salvation and really telling the church the congregation that that sin is a big deal sin in the life of a christian is a big deal at the same time he's trying to reassure those same christians those those true believers that they are saved and they're not saved by works, they're saved by grace. And to be honest, as a pastor, I get this struggle, because whenever a Christian comes in for counseling that's struggling with sin, I'm really trying to get across these two things. On one hand, I want them to know that sin is devastating, it's a big deal, it will destroy. At the same time, I want to encourage them that God is a God of mercy and grace, and we're saved by, by grace, not works. So John, in a very pastoral way, after giving this very convicting passage, writes a passage that we're going to go over today to, to encourage the church, to, to reassure the church, to let the church know that they are truly saved by grace, not by works. And so this week I have three points that I'd like to go over, and the first point is this, the assurance of an, of an informed conscience the assurance of an informed conscience. The second point is this, the boldness of a clear conscience. And the third point is this, the peace of a a spirit-filled conscience. The peace of a spirit-filled conscience. And I hope this week, as we leave, you're encouraged. I hope this sermon, because of this passage, brings assurance, boldness, and peace within your hearts. So let's go over the first point. The assurance of an of a informed conscience. Right, look, at, look at 1 John 3.19. It says this, By this we shall know. By this is mean it's pointing back to something. He's continuing the thought. By this, right, well, what's the this? What's he pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the previous thought, which is brotherly love. By this we shall know. And, and verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Right? By this we shall know. Well, know what? We shall know what? Well, the purpose of this epistle, that we shall know that we are truly saved, that we're truly children of God, that we're truly born again. Look at 1 John 3.19. It says this, By this we, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. In other words, what John is saying in this verse, pointing back to the previous passage, is if we love like Christ... We may indeed have full assurance in our heart that we are Christians because Christ-like love is evidence of salvation. But here's the problem. I don't always love like Christ, right? I don't always love like Christ. We, We don't always love like Christ. Does that mean I'm not saved? 
Well, look at verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. For whenever our heart condemns us, what's John saying here? Well, he's talking about our conscience. He's talking about our, that, 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 that inner feeling of guilt when we sin. Every human being has, has the law of God written on their heart. And a conscience that informs us when we're breaking that law. This is what it says in Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... It, it, Paul is talking about Gentiles that do not have Scripture at all. By nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even, even though they do not have the law, they don't have scriptures, they show the, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This means that, that every person... Every single human being has a self-knowledge or an innate ability to recognize wrong and right within their heart. And this is a form of what theologians call common grace. Common grace. It's, it's, it's God's common grace. It's a grace that's, that's given to everyone. That's why it's called common grace. Right? God's saving grace is only for, for, the, for God's elect, for those that have put their faith in him, put their faith in, in, the, uh, in Jesus and their son. Those that are born again, they are saved by God's saving grace. But God's common grace is grace given to everyone, saved or not saved, just or unjust. And this is what's talked about in Matthew 5.45. It's referring, this is what uh, Matthew 5.45 is referring to when it says, for he makes his sunshine on the evil and, and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? The sun and rain are, are grace from God. Have you ever thought about that? If the sun just stopped shining, what would happen? We wouldn't survive very long. If rain, we know this in California. If we don't get rain, right, for how modern technology we have, if we don't get rain, we're in trouble. Yet God has sun and, and rain, right? The sun shines and, and the rain comes on the just and the unjust. It doesn't just come on the church. Right? It's God's common grace on everyone, those that are saved and unsaved. And listen, we need to thank God for his common grace. Because it's through God's common grace that he restrains mankind from being as evil as they would be. He restrains mankind from being as evil as, as they would be otherwise. The Bible's clear on this. God restrains man's evilness. And there's three ways that he does it that the Bible tells us. One of them is family. Family is a, a form of God's common grace. He puts us in families. He gives us parents to teach us, to discipline us. Right, this is foundational to an, an orderly society, to peace, to civility. Another way, God, uh, another way God's common grace is uh, poured out on us is, is government. We've talked about this. The civil government maintains order in, in human society. Romans 13 talks about this. The government is a form of grace from God to protect us, to discourage evil men from committing crimes. 
from doing evil. And the third way God restrains evil in, in his common grace is, his, is man's conscience. Look, even men who are spiritually dead, totally lost and depraved, right, meaning sin affects every aspect of, of, of our lives, still have the law of God written on their heart and have a conscience that alerts them and many times stops them from committing evil. Family, government, conscience, or these are all forms of God's common grace to restrain man's evil. But here's the deal. They all can be corrupted. They all can be corrupted. A family unit can be corrupted or sidestep. Parents could, cannot fulfill the role that they have been given to discipline. Listen, if you love your child, you will discipline them. To not teach them. Government, we all know, can be corrupted. Even the conscience can be corrupted. Even though God has written the law on our heart, our conscience can be ignored, it can be suppressed, or it can be misinformed. That's because our conscience is meant to function in tandem with the Word of God. Our conscience is it's meant to be informed and guided by the word of God. This is what John MacArthur says. I, I love how he explains the conscience. It says this. The conscience is thus not in itself an independent system of morality. Rather, it, it operates based on whatever knowledge and belief system informs it. And in response to the cultural conditions surrounding it. If the level of moral and spiritual knowledge is drawn from any other source in Scripture, the conscience will function in response to those false ideas. Right, this is why it's so crucial to know God's Word. To let the Bible inform and guide our conscience. Because sometimes our conscience is wrong. Sometimes it's misinformed. It's even, even misled, misleading sometimes. Therefore, we need to get our conscience in tune with biblical truth. And that's what Psalms 19.7 is talking about. Listen to what it says. Psalms 19.7 says this. The, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible needs to inform our conscience because even Christians can have misinformed consciences. Our hearts can condemn us when God has made it clear that we have been forgiven. I want to be clear this morning. If there's a sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, that you haven't turned from, that you haven't asked God for forgiveness, and you feel guilty, right, your conscience is working great. <laughs> it's informing you. Deal with that sin. Repent. Turn away from that sin and trust in God and trust that he'll forgive you. Ask for forgiveness. And 1 John 1, 9 makes it clear. If we confess our sins, right, if we confess to God our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. But if you have confessed your sins and you're pursuing him and your heart is still condemning you, look at verse 20. 
For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. John's trying to encourage the church. Our hearts aren't the final judge. God is. God is greater than our heart. Partly because he knows everything. Our hearts don't know everything. They can be misinformed. They can be misleading. Right? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. In other words, my conscience is clear, but I'm not going to judge myself because I'm sure there's some sin that, that I'm not seeing. But I am, not, I, am, I am not there by acquitted. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. I don't judge myself because I don't know everything. But you know who does? God. Listen to what John says here. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Therefore, in other words, we, we need to let the Bible guide our conscience. John Stott wrote, it, wrote this. He says, Our conscience is by no means infallible. Its condemnation may often be unjust. We can, therefore, appeal from our conscience to God, who is greater and more knowledgeable. Indeed, he knows all things, including our secret motives and our deepest resolves. And it is implied we, we uh, will be more merciful towards us than even our own heart. And that's amazing to me. It's the implication of this text, this verse right here, that God is often more merciful than we are to ourselves sometimes in our own heart. I think sometimes we underestimate the, the mercy of God. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. And he knows everything about you, and listen, he is still willing to forgive you. If you were convicted last week about being indifferent towards people and not loving the way you should, listen to what Douglas O'Donnell says about this passage. He says this, God is not blind to our loving, unloving actions. He knows everything. He's not blind. He knows every detail of every single sin in our life. He knows that even the, the littlest lack of love carries the weight of eternal condemnation. But, and here's where the gospel according to John comes in, God still forgives accept his forgiveness through Christ. Rejoice in a renewed relationship. Pray and return to practicing righteousness. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to be clear. and Put your faith in Christ. Listen, if you feel guilty this morning because you don't have a relationship with the Lord, it's because you are guilty. You are guilty. But here's the good news. Jesus died to pay for that guilt, to pay the price that we deserve. Put your faith in him. Trust in him this morning. Listen, if you are a Christian this morning and you feel guilty because, because there's some, some sin in your life that you, you need to turn from and you haven't turned away from it, listen, repent. Turn from that sin and, and turn to God and ask for forgiveness. He's faithful and just to forgive you. I don't care if this is the hundredth time you've done that sin and a hundredth time you've asked for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness again. Turn from that sin. Run away from it. Get help. Trust in Christ.
But listen, if you are a Christian this morning and you feel guilty because of past sins or you just feel unworthy when you look at Christ, listen, Christ died for your sins. You are forgiven. Trust in God's forgiveness. He is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. 1 John 1, 9, again, it says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And Psalms 103, 12, which is a lot of our favorite, one of our favorite Psalms says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions, our sins from us. Again, sometimes I think we just underestimate God's mercy and grace in our lives. Therefore, we need to align our conscience with biblical truth. Let the Bible inform our conscience. Understand God's mercy and grace so you can have a clear conscience. Not because you're sinless, that's not why, but because you are forgiven. And through that clear conscience, you can have boldness and insurance. And that leads me to the next point. Next point of the sermon is the boldness of a clear conscience. And this is verse 21. It says this, Behold, if our heart does not condemn us, because we have trusted in God, right? Because our conscience understands that we are truly forgiven. We have confidence before God. Isn't that true? When you have a clear conscience... Just have a more confidence in your relationship with the Lord. This is the second time John has used this word confidence when it comes to our relationship with with God. The first time is 1 John 2, 28, and it says this, And now, little children, abide in him so that that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He used, that's the first time he uses it. The second time he uses it's here in 1 John 3, 21, where he says, We have confidence before God. This word confidence in Greek is aparousia. Sorry, aparousia. Parousia. Oh my goodness. Um, it's a state of boldness and confidence in intimidating circumstances. It's a word that's used mostly in speaking boldly. Having confidence in your speech. It's used in Acts most of the time in, in when the, the apostles were preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel, they were speaking boldly with confidence. John is saying we can have confidence before a holy God because of the cross, because of Christ's works. We can speak boldly to God. Look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. We can, we can speak boldly to God, and he will answer. Does this mean that he'll give us everything we want, everything we ask for? No, look, listen to what John adds. Verse 22, it says this, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. In other words, if you keep God's commandments, and uh, he will listen to you. And, and let me talk about an important stipulation here. If we keep his commandments, well, why? To please him. It says, and, and do what pleases him. We keep his commandments not out of some, some uh, legalistic sense, but because we love God. 
and our love for him means we follow him and we keep his commandments, right? Meaning we keep his commandments out of a right motive, out of a pure heart. Then anything we ask of him, we will receive. Because we will be asking from a pure heart and, and we will be directly in line with the will of God. Does that make sense? This is what Warren Wearsby uh, uh, says. Sorry. When our delight is in the love of God, our desire will be in the will of God. When our delight is in the love of God, our desire will be in the will of God. And that means our prayers will be in line with the will of God. And listen, they will be answered because God accomplishes his will. John says this in, in 1 John 5.14, and this is the third time he uses that word confidence. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Right? Hears us. Look at verse 23. And this is the commandment, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. There's something interesting in this verse. Look at the word commandment. It's singular. It's not plural. This is his commandment. One command. What is it? That we love, or that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. Doesn't that sound like two commandments? Two things? Listen, to John... Faith and belief is so connected to love, especially brotherly love within the church, that he calls it one commandment. One command. To John, if you believe in Christ, you will love one another. And that's why loving your brother is evidence of salvation, because it's evidence of true, genuine belief in God. Look how John ends this passage in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Do you see the Trinity in there? Look at verse 23, it says this. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us, and whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We see all the different, different roles of the, the Trinity. We, we have confidence in our relationship with God the Father, right? We can boldly approach him, we can boldly pray to God the Father because of the works of Jesus and believing in him. And we can have assurance in this life by the Spirit whom he has given. The Son, the Father, and the Spirit, right? This leads to a question, though, that last phrase, by the Spirit whom he has given. This is the first time that John directly talks about the Spirit and relates it to assurance. How, how does the Holy Spirit bring assurance? How does the Holy Spirit bring, bring assurance? And this leads to my third and final point, the, the peace of a spirit-filled conscience. The peace of a spirit-filled conscience. And I want to give credit to Timothy Keller, who's a great author. I recommend him. I get most of this understanding from him in this final point. 
It says this in the end of of our passage. It says, by the Spirit whom he has given. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, says something very interesting. In in John 16, 7, he says this to the the disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Think about that for a second. This is after spending three years with the, the disciples he tells them, it's to your advantage that I leave you, that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? This is the message that he tells them. If I must leave so I can send the helper. And it's better that you have the helper than me physically walking with you. How is that better? I often think about this passage. Like having the Holy Spirit living within us, and I get that, is better than than being physically present with Jesus. In other words, being able to ask him questions, like how should I handle this, this, this being a husband or a father? How is that true? How is it having the Holy Spirit living with us better than being with Jesus and in his physical presence. I don't want to make it clear. He's talking to the disciples. I get the point that, that Jesus is physical, so he can only be in one place at one time, and the Spirit can be everywhere. Right? That's partly the answer, but he's talking to the disciples. He's saying, it's better for you that I go away so the Spirit comes on you. Well, to answer this question, we need to examine one really important word, and that word is translated helper. And we've gone over this before. The Greek word is parakletos. Parakletos. We know this word because it's used in 1 John. Turn with me to 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... Again, this is another place where John's kind of walking that fine line. He's trying to encourage the church. He's saying, hey, hey, don't sin. And, and evidence of salvation is living righteously and pursuing God. But if you do sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate. That's the same word. It's the same word that's translated helper. Right here, John calls Jesus the parakletos. Right, the helper, the advocate. Well, what's this word mean? It's actually kind of a hard word to translate. It's translated throughout Scripture th- these ways. Helper, comforter, counselor, exhorter, encourager, and advocate. Parakletos in Greek, this is review, but para means come alongside. That's where we get parallel from. It's two lines that are alongside each other. Or parable, it's a story, a made-up story that 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 comes alongside a true life event or how we live. Para means come alongside, and kletos means call or direct or to use one's voice to call. So when you put these words together, it means one who who lends his voice in our defense or one who speaks up on our behalf. Advocate, it kind of works, and we said when we went over this passage, like a defense attorney almost. A defense attorney is a person that that speaks up to defend someone else. 
And it speaks up to defend someone else. And Jesus is our advocate. He is, he is like our defense attorney in a court. Look at 1 John 2.1. It says this, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? Jesus is our defense attorney for us that are saved. And the judge is the Father. In other words, Jesus is interceding for us with the Father. He's our parakletos. He speaks on our behalf. And that's why when I sin as a Christian, I'm not unsaved somehow. I'm not condemned. Because Jesus is advocating for us. He is arguing for us. And I believe Jesus' argument goes something like this. As he's talking to the Father. Father, my people have sinned. He's honest, right? He's not hiding the fact when we sin as Christians. And the law demands that the wages of sin is death. But I have paid for those sins. See, here is my blood, the token of my death. On the cross I have paid the penalty of these sins completely. Now if anyone were to exact two payments for the same sin, it would be unjust. And so I am asking for mercy for them. I am asking for justice. Listen, when we sin, Jesus is appealing to, to the justification right, that, that we are saved, that Jesus has paid the price for those sins on the cross. Not only our past sins, but our future ones too. We are declared 100% righteous as if we lived the life Jesus lived. And Jesus is using his voice. I want you to get this. He's using his voice to remind the Father of this truth. He's advocating for us. He's our defense attorney in a sense. He's the parakletos. Now turn with me to, to John 14, 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15. Verse 15 says this. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. He will give you another helper. The word helper, again, is that word parakletos in Greek. right? Advocate, defense attorney. The word another is actually interesting. He will give you another helper, right? another parakletos. Well, who is the first parakletos? We just went over that. Jesus. Right? Jesus is the first parakletos, and he's saying, I'm going to give you another parakletos, which is another one that's coming. But this is where it gets interesting. There's two words in Greek for another. We, we have one. There's two in Greek. Heteros is, is one of the Greek words, which means another of a different kind. That's where we get the word heterosexual from. I'm married to another human of a different kind. Right? Alos, on the other hand, is another way of saying another, is to say another of the same exact kind. So you can get really specific when you say, give me another of something. If I had an apple in my hand, for example, and I said, give me another piece of fruit, and I use the word heteros, you would probably give me an orange. You think about that. 
It's another of a different kind, another piece of fruit, but a different fruit. If I said alos and I had an apple in my hand, you would try to find that same exact apple and hand it to me so I'd have two of that same exact. Right? Does that make sense? What word do you think Jesus used when he says, I'll give you another helper? Alos. Alos. Another of the same exact kind. Right? That means to understand what, what, what the Holy Spirit does, how he helps us, how he's our advocate, you really got to understand how, how Jesus is our advocate, right? Because he's another advocate, he's another parakletos of the same kind, right? I'm sending another parakletos, another defense attorney, just like myself. Well, how is, how is Jesus our advocate, right? He argues for our salvation, right? That's what we were saying. He, he uses his voice and he argues for our salvation, well then, what does the second advocate do? The same exact thing. But here's the two questions I want to answer. How and with who? How and with who? Look at verse 17. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you you and will be in you. In verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but, but you will see me. What does he mean by that? I will come to you and you will see me. I thought he was leaving, right? He's preparing to leave. He's preparing to disciples and he's saying, you will see me and I'll come to you. I, I'm pretty sure he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. Right? The Holy Spirit will come. And through him, you will know Jesus better. I mean, think about this. I would argue, and, and, and see if you agree with me, I would argue that the apostles had a closer relationship with Jesus after he left than when they were walking with him. Before the Spirit came, right, the three years that they walked with Jesus, they were clueless. They didn't understand the true mission of Jesus. They didn't understand Jesus' suffering. They didn't understand who Jesus truly was. They didn't understand Jesus' love for the Father. And they did not understand Jesus' love for them. But after the Spirit, you look at the book of Acts. Man, they get it. Look at verse, skip down to verse 25 now. It says this, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, there's that word again, the parakletos, right? The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Right? He will teach you and bring to remembrance. This is what Timothy Keller says. In the upper room that night before the cross, the apostles still didn't have the slightest idea of how much he loved them, what it will cost to love them, or what his love will accomplish for them. All of that is cloudy to them at this point. Therefore, though they have actually lived with him for three years, they hadn't encountered the real Jesus. They still didn't know him. But the Holy Spirit will come, and he will not merely hold their hand or give them some energy. He will teach them deep, life-changing truths. He will finally help them see the depth of their sin and finally show them what Jesus did for them on the cross. 
So how is the Holy Spirit a parakletos or advocate or a defense attorney? Who is the Holy Spirit arguing with about our salvation? Us. He's arguing with us. He's reminding you. He's exhorting you. He's beseeching you. He's entreating you to live in the reality of Christ's love. Look at verse 26. The parakletos, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, brings to your remembrance all, the, all that I said to you. Right? He reminds you of Jesus. So what he did, he helps you see him clearer. Right? He helps you understand what he did for you. Let me just give you an illustration. If you were a billionaire, or if you knew someone that was a billionaire, and they lost $10... Or that wouldn't be a big deal, right? I lose $10, I'm searching the whole house. So you're turning the beds around. But if you're a billionaire, right, it costs more money to look for the $10 than just to walk away from it. Right? And if you were stressed and you just couldn't, you lost sleep over the $10, you were turning your house around, you're looking everywhere for the $10, and your friends are like, dude, you're a billionaire. Why are you looking for these $10? People would say, you're crazy, right? Listen, the Holy Spirit reminds you that you are spiritual billionaires. He's arguing with your heart and soul, telling you that. If you had a setback, you've, you've sinned and you've asked for forgiveness, but you're tossing and turning because you're struggling with, with, with the thought that you, you've messed up or you're stressed or angry because something got in the, in the way of what you wanted or, or you're living for something other than God. If you do any of these things, you don't understand your true identity. Billionaires in Christ. Timothy Keller said this, it's the job of the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, to argue with you in the courtroom of your heart to make the case about about who you are in Christ to show you that you're rich. And your job, listen, your job is to listen. To listen to the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.3 says this, blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. Is that a lot of blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. We're rich. Romans eight thirty two, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, your job is to listen to these verses and live in your, your true identity, live in light of these verses. That's what John's saying in this passage. In 1 John 3.20, when our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. God, the Holy Spirit, it lives within you, and he's reminding you of your true identity, that you are adopted sons and daughters of God, and he's greater than your condemning heart. Because of this, the second, the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, Jesus can say in verse 27, look at this, peace, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
Listen, when you put your faith in Christ, in Jesus, you don't have to have an unhealthy fear of God anymore. Because he's your father. And he gives you the right and ability, listen, to, to, to go to the judgment seat and co- with confidence. To go to, to, go to the, 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 the seat of grace and mercy and boldness. Not because of anything we've done. Because your sins have been paid for. Listen, I hope you're encouraged this morning. We're called to love each other and, and we're going to fail. But we're not saved because of what we've done. We're saved because of what Christ has done for us. And we can have a bold relationship with God. If you're saved this morning, listen. You are spiritual billionaires in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I know there's this this balance, Lord, that we see in your scriptures, God, that you make it clear that sin in our lives is a big deal, and we need to address it, we need to repent, we need to turn from it, we need to run from it, Lord. That sin will slowly destroy us from the inside, Lord. That, that it will take our confidence, it will take our assurance away, Lord. Help us as a church and, and, and as Christians, Lord, to examine our hearts and to be honest with ourselves about, about what sin truly is, Lord. Yet, Lord, on the other side of that, I pray that we have confidence, not in, in the fact that we're slowly growing or we're, we're, we're putting sin behind us, but we have confidence in you. We have confidence in what you have done for us, Lord. That you are a God of mercy and grace, Lord. And that you died on the cross for our sins, Lord. And because of that, we can have a boldness and confidence in our relationship. That's amazing. A holy, infinite God adopting us into, the, into your family, Lord. I pray as we have stresses at work and stresses in life, Lord, every time that, that something happens that, that seems just too much for us to handle, Lord, that we take a, take a step back, Lord, and remind who we truly are, remind ourselves who we truly are, that we listen to the spirit that's within us, Lord. We listen to your word, that we're billionaires, we're, we're, we're rich, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing, Lord. That this world's not our home, so sometimes it's going to be hard. I get that. It's going to be temptations. There's going to be frustrations, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that 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 the reality of 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 who we are in you overshadows all of that, Lord, and that we lived in boldness, boldness because of your grace. In your Son's name, Amen.